Well, we are uh, doing a sort of a strange sermon series. If you were to ask around and ask what it is that people are preaching through, probably nobody else has picked this book of the Bible. But I'll tell you, you know, if you've missed the sermon so far this year, you've missed some of the best sermons in the history of Christendom. But, yeah, if you believe that, I got some land I'd like to sell you too. We're, we're looking at the book of Numbers, um, which is not even the right title. The book of Numbers is what comes from the Greek translation, the Septuagint. The Hebrew title of this book is actually Bemidbar, in the wilderness. And it is about the Lord with his people in the wilderness. The Lord speaking to his people, the Lord delivering his people and then staying with them in the wilderness, leading them to the promised land. That is certainly who we are still today as a people delivered, saved, rescued, but we have not yet arrived at our final destination. And so we are in the wilderness and it is good to know of a God who is in the wilderness with us. And what we see in the Old Testament with the people of God there very much is a foreshadowing and a typifying, a prefiguring of what has been accomplished in Christ. It is now true uh, to the New Testament people of God, the church of Christ. And so as his church, let's come to the Lord in prayer in anticipation of having the Lord speak to us again this morning. Indeed, our God, you have revealed yourself. You have spoken and your word Uh, revealed is right here for us. We get to open it up right now uh, to hear it read, to hear it proclaimed, and to have you speak to us in order to hear your word rightly, uh, to interpret it rightly, to apply it rightly. We need you. And so we would pray for your Holy Spirit to be at work at this moment, uh, bearing witness to the reading and preaching of your word, that we would hear it from you. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher and know that he is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, before we get to chapter 7, we have been reviewing what it is that we've seen so far because the Bible encourages repetition. The Bible itself is loaded with repetition. If you were to take all the repetition of the Bible out, it would be a very short book. Uh, The Bible again and again is is wanting to hammer home uh, certain key ideas, and it's the idea that we are to memorize it, to remember it, that we might take it with us all the time. The the very first words of this book say the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness. And we consider again how amazing it is that the God of the Bible, the one true God, is a God who speaks to his people. God comes near to his people and speaks to us. And we often say, I wish that God would speak to me. And we forget that he has lots and lots. We have it right here. So I'm going to review Numbers 1 through 6 very briefly and do it with some number mnemonics. So you're ready for this. Um, Chapter 1 is the first census, right? Chapter 1, the first census of those who are able to serve in the army if and when the uh, the nation goes to war. Chapter 2 is the, uh, the nation camped and looking to the Lord. Right? They're camped around the tabernacle so that everyone is focused and turning to the Lord at all times. Three tribes on each of the four sides of the tabernacle. And then chapter 3, we've got the 13th tribe of Levi. And see how it is that Levi is the priestly tribe, foreshadows the priestly mediation of Jesus. And then chapter 4 describes the duties of the four groups of Levi's. There is Aaron and his sons, 
than the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merorites. And they're all given particular duties uh, within uh, the regular daily work, uh, but also then when the camp is to move from place to place. Chapter 5 then shows purity restored for five areas of sin. The clean sins, the uh, discharges and ceremonial uncleanness and touching uh, dead corpses, but then also for transgressions and unfaithfulness and that purity being restored. We realize that sin is not just acts of sin, but is our very sinful condition. It's what puts us in the condition of, of death. Sin is that which separates us from God. And so the Old Testament purity laws vividly describe that spiritual condition of death with physical maladies. And then we see that Jesus himself was taken outside the camp so that we could have new life and ultimately eternal life in Christ. And that takes us to chapter 6, which we saw last week in the Nazarites. And if you remember that we talked about that it takes 66 days to form a new habit. That the Nazarite vow, this voluntary vow of separation, had to have lasted long enough that a person could see that you were uh, having taken a Nazarite vow because of the length of your hair. It had grown noticeably long. And we remember that while salvation is instant, sanctification is a lifelong process. Life transformation is a lifelong process that leans continually on the grace of God by utilizing the means of grace, the word, sacrament, and prayer. And so that chapter 6 concludes with the Lord's benediction, the Lord blessing us, the Lord's idea to bless us. We sometimes ask why God doesn't do more to stop bad things from happening in this world, and we forget just how much God's restraining grace is always at work. If not for God's restraining grace, there would be nothing but bad. And so those occasions when we see disasters and we see sin still um, having an impact on our lives and the lives of others, it is a reminder of just how much it is that God is doing to protect us from infinite and eternal evil. And we return again and again to continue to seek for the Lord to do more of that in our lives and in this world. And from that, we see that we then are blessed by God in order to be a blessing in response to God and to others. The Lord had said to Abram, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so the Lord has blessed us that we might then be a blessing in response to all the world. And that then takes us to chapter 7. I'm going to start just by reading the the first section of this, which is actually the first 11 verses. So listen to uh, Bay Midbar in the wilderness, chapter 7, the first 11 verses. When Moses finished setting up the tabernacle, he anointed it and consecrated it and all its furnishings. He also anointed and consecrated the altar and all its utensils. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of families, who were the tribal leaders in charge of those who were counted, made offerings. They brought as their gifts before the Lord six covered carts and 12 oxen, an ox from each leader and a cart from every two. These they presented before the tabernacle. The Lord said to Moses, accept these from them that they may be used in the work at the tent of meeting. Give them to the Levites as each man's work requires. So Moses took the carts and oxen 
and gave them to the Levites. He gave two carts and four oxen to the Gershonites as their work required. And he gave four carts and eight oxen to the Merorites as their work required. They were all under the direction of Ithamar, son of Aaron, the priest. But Moses did not give any to the Kohathites because they were to carry on their shoulders the holy things for which they were responsible. When the altar was anointed, the leaders brought their offerings for its dedication and presented them before the altar. For the Lord had said to Moses each day, one leader is to bring his offering for the dedication of the altar. We'll pause there for a moment. The main point of this chapter will be the gifts that the 12 tribes present to the Lord. But first, we must see the main focus of where these gifts are presented, the anointed altar. Again, verse 1, when Moses finished setting up the tabernacle, he anointed it, consecrated it in all its furnishings. He also anointed and consecrated the altar and all its utensils. And then verse 10, when the altar was anointed, that was then the leaders brought their offerings for its dedication and presented them before the altar. Now, what is the altar? The altar is the place for the actual sacrifice, the place where atonement is made. The Old Testament sacrifices on the altar foreshadow, they anticipate, they prefigure the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. So whenever you read about the altar in the tabernacle, think cross of Christ. In fact, following the exile, the book of Ezra recounts the rebuilding of the temple. And the very first thing that was rebuilt was the altar. Not the foundation, not the walls, the altar. The cross of Christ comes first. The cross of Christ is where we return when we have lost our way. The cross of Christ is central to the gospel, whether sharing it for the first time or whether being reminded of God's great love for us. The cross of Christ is central. The people of God present their offerings at the place where atonement is made. The very presence of the altar is the realization that God is present and atones for our sins even before that first offering is made. Jen and I received a great Christmas gift this year, a gas-powered weed whacker. Just gets you excited, doesn't it? Some of you out there are thinking, oh, that is a good gift. And if you know our backyard, our backyard gets overrun with weeds, and it just takes miles of extension cords to try and reach stuff with electric weed whackers that just never seem to do the job. And so my in-laws, who are fantastic people, got us a gas-powered weed whacker, and I cannot wait to whack weeds this summer. We haven't even taken out of the box, but I am already excited about the possibility of whacking the weeds and having a completely different dynamic in our backyard. Everything has changed, and I haven't even taken it out of the box yet. The existence of the altar is the realization that there is atonement. Sins are going to get whacked. Today, we have this great privilege of living A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, the cross of Christ, having already accomplished our sacrifice. For the Old Testament people of God, they lived in the expectation of what has now been accomplished. Their gifts and ours are brought in response to atonement accomplished by God's grace. And if all of that is not a Christ-centered enough image, then consider that not only was it an altar, 
but the altar was anointed. What is the Hebrew word for anoint? Messiah. The Greek word Christ. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. And so Moses anointed the altar. He messiahed the altar. He christened the altar. And so when you, again, when you look at the altar and see the anointed altar, you see Christ, Jesus the Christ, and the atoning sacrifice that has been made on the cross. That's what's happening here. And so Moses has anointed it, but when? You got to read again, and one of the things we see in the Bible that sometimes is uh, hard for us linear chronological thinkers is the Bible doesn't go in linear fashion, um, but continues to sort of repeat cycles. And so the day that... Uh, that Moses anointed the altar is when he had finished setting up the tabernacle, all of which is previous to chapter one of the book of Numbers. So what we read in chapter seven actually took place before chapter one. You get all that? Numbers chapter one, verse one tells us the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. So following the Exodus, Israel's in the wilderness and for 13 months, Moses is receiving the law at Mount Sinai. They are building the temple itself. And then Moses anoints the altar. Exodus chapter 40, the last chapter of Exodus, details Moses setting up the tabernacle on the first day of the first month with with Moses anointing everything in Exodus 40 verse 9, a month before the first census was taken. That census, again, was... Uh, assembling the people of God as an army, a holy army separate from all other nations and completely focused on serving the Lord who delivered them and is bringing them to the promised land. And so the census follows one month after the setting up of the tabernacle, the anointing, and all of the gifts that are going to be brought. So why is it recorded here? Why isn't it recorded first? Why, why here in chapter 7? Because it's immediately following the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That blessing, that priestly blessing is the the proclamation of God's grace. And so uh, chapter 7 shows how it is the gifts are given in response to God's blessing. It shows that the people give gifts not to merit the Lord's blessing, not because they've done purity vows or Nazarite vows, but are doing it in response to the Lord who has blessed first. We are blessed to go and be a blessing. The Lord blesses us, and our life is a response to that. Guilt-mongering says, do it or else. Grace says, it is finished. We are saved by grace, and we do good works that God has prepared for us in response to grace. The altar has been anointed. The Messiah has accomplished our atonement. Our life is in response to this. So let's look at what that response is and see um, those. It's the the main section of chapter 7 of the book of Numbers, which, by the way, is the longest chapter in the Pentateuch. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Right? It's loaded with repetition, and the repetition is for effect, and I don't want us to lose that effect. And so what we, need to, what we picture here is the 12 days of Christmas. It takes forever to sing the whole song, right? And so you almost never do it. The kids always want to, but we think, oh, man. 
We remember then the first couple of days, but days 9, 10, 11, 12 are a little foggy because we never quite make it that far and don't get as repeated as much. The 12 days of Christmas, by the way, are the 12 days after Christmas. It's the 12 days of Christmas. Christmas has happened, and the gifts are this response to the Christmas gift. And then the gifts pile up. There's one partridge pear tree, but it's given 12 times. So there's 12 in total. There are two turtle doves, but they're given 11 times, so that there are actually 22 turtle doves. There are three French hens, but they're given 10 times, so there's actually 30 French hens, and you see how that goes. If you total up all the giving, how many gifts are there? 364. One for each day of the year, except for Christmas Day, which is the gift that prompts the whole thing. Someone has calculated the cost for the 12 gifts as $35,000, but they haven't factored in the 364 total, so it's actually way more than that. All of which is to say that when you read Numbers chapter 7, you're meant to see this huge amount of gift giving that just keeps pouring in day after day. So let's listen to the first repetition, which is actually the, the first day of Christmas, verses 12 through 17. The one who brought his offering on the first day was Nashon, son of Aminadab, of the tribe of Judah. His offering was one silver plate weighing 130 shekels, one silver sprinkling bowl weighing 70 shekels, both according to the sanctuary shekel, each filled with fine flour mixed with oils, a grain offering, one gold dish weighing 10 shekels filled with incense, one young bull, one ram, and one male lamb, a year old for a burnt offering. One male goat for a sin offering, and two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs a year old to be sacrificed as a fellowship offering. This was the offering of Nashon, son of Aminadab. And then each day, each tribe comes and gives the exact same gift for 12 consecutive days. Each of the 12 tribes has an equal stake in the worship of God. If we had time, we might create sort of emotionally stirring uh, rendition of this. this. Have you seen the movie Rudy and the closing scene, right, where all the the players come up and lay their jersey down and says, "I, I want this for Rudy. And you see all the players and the lineup of players coming one at a time to present this great gift. That's the idea, the emotional stirring of day after day, all the people of God doing it. Notice, by the way, it's also a representative offering that each tribe has one person who brings the gift on behalf of the tribe. It's from the whole tribe, but one person who is the representative who has the privilege of bringing the gift to the Lord. The total tonnage of items that are presented are overwhelming. We see it beginning at verse 84. Here's the summary of all that was brought. These were the offerings of the Israelite leaders for the dedication of the altar when it was anointed. Twelve silver plates, twelve silver sprinkling bowls, 12 gold dishes. Each silver plate weighed 130 shekels, each sprinkling bowl 70 shekels. Altogether, the silver dishes weighed 2,400 shekels, according to the sanctuary shekel. The 12 gold dishes filled with incense weighed 10 shekels each, according to the sanctuary shekel. Altogether, the gold dishes weighed 120 shekels. 
The total number of animals for the burnt offering came to 12 young bulls, 12 rams, 12 male lambs a year old, together with their grain offering. 12 male goats were used for the sin offering. The total number of animals for the sacrifice of the fellowship offering came to 24 oxen, 60 rams, 60 male goats, 60 male lambs a year old. These were the offerings, dedication of the altar after it was anointed and a partridge in a pear tree. We are meant to see what the people brought and the attitude with which they brought it. First, we see what they brought. I mean, what do you you give to the God who has everything, right? You're bringing gifts to the Lord who not only has everything but made everything. Do you have people like that in your life? You don't know what to get them because they have everything? What are you supposed to bring as a gift to God who has everything? Well, the Lord has just moved into a new house, so how about some housewarming gifts? Right? That is essentially what it is that has been brought. The 12 tribes bring gifts with an understanding of the nature and function of the house of God. And actually, the first thing that they brought is back in verse 3, uh, means of transport. They brought carts and oxen because they know the tabernacle is going to be moved when they move from place to place. And so to help the Levites with their work, the people provided carts and oxen. And Moses distributed these items what seems like an unequal way. He gives four carts to the Merorites, two to the Gershonites, and none to the Kohathites. Why? The least significant group, the Merorites, have the heaviest to do. They've got all the frames, the posts, and the bases. The Gershonites then have the curtains. The Kohathites on the other hand, carried everything by hand, the precious cargo of the ark itself and the most holy things. And so it's an exceptional gift of the people to the Levites, recognizing a basic need. It wasn't flashy, but helpful. Carts. Still today, the people of God are a blessing by giving not what is flashy, but recognizing what is needed to carry out the Lord's work. And so along with gifts that were for the means of transport, the tribes also gave gifts that were for the means of sacrifice. The utensils, the silver and the, uh, the bowls and plates, but also the offerings, grain offerings and animal offerings for all of the various sacrifices that were to be made. Part of those offerings were uh, sacrificed to the Lord, burnt on the altar, and the other part went to the Levites and their families. As such, these gifts were the means of ministry. The daily sacrifice could begin. The priests and their families provided for. The people of God brought these gifts with an attitude of joy and thanksgiving. No guilt-driven appeals to fund the ministry of the tabernacle. The people saw what was needed and gave freely, generously, and unitedly. Is that not what we saw in our New Testament reading from 2 Corinthians 9? Whoever sows sparingly also reaps sparingly. Whoever sows generously reaps generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The late Larry Burkett, founder of Crown Ministries, observed, although the tithe is mentioned in the law, no punishment was ever indicated for not tithing. Consequences for not tithing included perhaps a withholding of blessings, but that's not generally viewed as punishment. Tithing has been and always will be 
a voluntary act on the part of God's people. And so from this, we come to what is really the most remarkable uh, summation statement in verse 89. Listen to verse 89. When Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from between the two cherubim above the atonement cover on the Ark of the Testimony. And he spoke with him. There are people that will talk about anointed preachers, sort of charismatic terminology for someone who can really stir it up, sweats a lot when he preaches. But truly anointed preachers are those who preach of the anointing, who preach the cross of Christ, who preach Christ and him crucified. The apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Truly anointed preaching doesn't suggest new revelation, but announces the revelation of God's word. Moses went into the holy of holies and heard the Lord speak. But here we're told precisely where he hears the Lord speak. Not just in the tent of meeting, not just in the tabernacle, and not just in the holy of holies, but between the two cherubim above the atonement cover on the Ark of the Testimony. What the NIV translates as atonement cover is translated by most others as the mercy seat. Mercy seat is that traditional phrase, but atonement is what is in mind. The root word there is the same as in uh, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. The glory cloud of the Lord, a visible representation of his presence, rested above the ark. And his voice was heard there as well in the center of the Holy of Holies. The tabernacle, not an empty shrine, but the place where God dwelt and spoke to his people. And so it is from this mercy seat that God ministers to us, giving us everything. And it is at this mercy seat that we see that our true love has given us everything and our ministry is response to this. And so we do a mercy seat ministry. My true love gave to me. And it turns out the true love is God himself who has given us everything. What we give in response is a response to everything that he's given to us. He says, I've given you 10, bring one back. And we bring one back recognizing that all 10 were from him in the first place. He could ask for all 10 back and would be right to do so. But he's pleased to give us 10 and to steward those things well. But part of that stewardship is to say, bring one in return. It's the tithe. But the mercy seat ministry says it's not just giving for the sake of giving and it's not giving in order to feel good about our giving. It's because it's mercy. It's sacrifice. And all giving is sacrificial giving. The Lord sacrificed in his giving of Christ to us on the cross. The giving that we do is a sacrificial response of thanksgiving for what the Lord has first done for us. And it is an extension then of mercy that we're able to do in the church and in the community by taking that which it is the people of God give for the work of God, that mercy of God might be known and proclaimed. The Lord loves a cheerful giver because it recognizes 
It is a thanksgiving offering for all that has been given to us by the truth who set us free. Amen.